Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Today's cool fact of the day is that your body can store several weeks worth of vitamin D at a time. So if you're going on a trip and you don't want to carry around a little bottle of vitamin D supplements, you can take several times your normal dose and be set for a few days. It's perfectly safe to take 50,000 IUs of vitamin D once a week instead of taking it every day. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today, we have James Krieger with us. He runs a blog debunking health myths called The Health Sleuth. He has a master's degree in nutrition from the University of Florida and a second master's degree in exercise science from Washington State. He's a former research director for the corporate weight management program that treated over 400 people per year with an average weight loss of 40 pounds in three months. His former weight loss clients include the founder of Sylvan Learning Centers and The Little Gym, the vice president from Costco, and a former vice president of MSN, which is Microsoft's online arm. He's given over 75 lectures on weight loss-related topics to physicians, dietitians, and other professionals. In addition, he's authored 
five peer-reviewed studies for the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition and the Journal of Applied Physiology. He joins us today on Upgraded Self Radio specifically to talk about artificial sweeteners, colorings, and preservatives and how they may or may not be affecting your health. We're going to move into our exclusive interview with James Krieger about artificial sweeteners, preservatives, and colorings. We're really excited to have James Krieger here for this interview. And part of the Bulletproof Executive sort of philosophy is to look at the science side of what works and also look at the the biohacking or the self-experimenting side of what works. So we invited James onto the show. Uh, he's definitely a nutrition expert, very well credentialed, and he runs Weightology LLC and has a weekly publication and consulting service providing non-biased health information and weight loss advice. But he's also one of those guys, I would say, who's a relative supporter of artificial sweeteners. So you'll hear here some counterpoints to some of the advice that, that I believe is most optimal around healthy sweeteners and around unhealthy sweeteners. James has done a lot of statistical research looking at existing reports for artificial sweeteners and looks at determining their safety. We discussed them at length, and I think that you'll hear during the report that there are some that are higher risk than others, and in James's case, he believes that most of these sweeteners are not harmful. I think he and I are going to agree to disagree on this, but I think you'll learn some things from this interview, and I'm very excited that he was on the show. How did you get interested in fat loss and nutrition in the first place? How did you get going in this? It actually started a long, uh, quite a long time ago. So I had started school at the University of Washington, and uh, I was I was actually planning to go into computer science. And but I really got I started weight training and everything because um, I was a pretty skinny guy in high school, and uh, I really got fascinated by how my body was transforming and everything. So. So I really started to get, at the time, into the science of, like, building muscle and all that that type of thing. Well, you know, my interest grew more and more, you know, in, in those terms. Um, then it turned out I, I wasn't able to get in the computer science department at, at University of Washington. It's pretty hard to get in. They, they only take, like, 30 out of 120 people or so at, at the time. And so I transferred to Washington State University, and I had a friend who was in the exercise science department at Washington State University. But, but I, I first went into computer science over, over at Washington State, and, uh, and I was just kind of losing interest in the computer science field and gaining more interest in the exercise field. And my friend noticed how passionate I was about it, and he said, you know, I think you should, you know, do exercise science. And, and I thought... Uh, at the time, I thought, no, you know, I'm gonna, you know, I don't know what I would do with an exercise science degree. I think I'll just, you know, you know, I'm just gonna stick with my path. But um, as time went on, I just <laughs> disliked computer science more and more, and I just decided, you know what, you know, if I'm gonna make a change, I, I should do it now. Um, you know, I only had a year left on my computer science degrees, so, but I ended up totally changing my major, exercise science, and got more and more into the interested in the fat loss perspective. Um, and what really got me interested in the fat loss perspective eventually was, you know, I, I got my degree in exercise science at Washington State, and then I went down to, to University of Florida and got my degree down there. And um, when I came back, I started working for a program called 2020 Lifestyles. And um, the original thought was, because um, I was a PhD student in nutrition down in Florida, and uh, I um, 
wasn't really working out for me down there. So I actually finished with a second master's degree. I moved back up here and I decided, well, you know, I'll just work for a year, reestablish my residency in the state, and then I'll finish my PhD at University of Washington in nutrition. Uh, so I, I took a job just as a personal trainer at, at um, it's called the Pro Sports Club, actually the, one of the largest health clubs in the world. Uh, most of their clientele are Microsoft employees because Microsoft subsidizes the membership. So, um, so I started as a personal trainer there, but the CEO there kind of took notice of me and my background and everything. And, and he goes, you know, I've really been, you know, we, we've got this big weight loss program called 2020 lifestyles. And, and I'd really, I want a, a person who, do, who will do research and, and things. So, so they actually hired me into that position there. And then I did that for four or five years. And, and so then I really got into the weight loss aspect of it because, I mean, that was my job. I did literature reviews for the, the staff, um, you know, because we had, you know, physicians and dietitians on the staff. And so I'd do literature reviews. I, I would do some, um, uh, you know, I'd look at the data on our own clients. Um, I did, you know, half of my job was digging up PubMed research and, and reading research and everything. And, and so I actually never went back to finish my PhD because because uh, I was basically doing what I wanted to do. So so that's how I really got into the the the, the weight loss aspect of things. It's pretty funny that the background there with computer science and, and cutting over. You know, I, I call myself a biohacker, and I did the computer science and the computer information <laughs> systems thing. And at the same time, I weighed 300 pounds. So I just said, look, if I can, you know, hack a really complex internet architecture and figure out how things work on multiple levels. I, I need to do this for myself because my doctor sure as heck isn't. And, you know, this was 15 years ago, but the amount of research and just system thinking that goes into it, then all of a sudden, like, oh, this is actually kind of fun. In fact, it's more interesting than some computer science problems by a long shot. So it, it's neat to hear that you did three quarters of a computer science program to, to learn the, the systems thinking, which I think goes really great along with things like PubMed that let you look at how biology works. Yeah, yeah. Well, so one of your areas of interest is is artificial sweeteners, and it's one of mine as well. Are they as bad as many people think? I'm of the opinion of no, and and the, the reason is is like I mean, if you really look at the science on them, and you you, you kind of take it because the, you go on the internet and there's all kinds of scare stories about artificial sweeteners and everything. But the, the problem with with those stories is number one. You know, anecdotes are not necessarily reliable scientific evidence because the, the thing is, is, you know, let's say I eat a food with an artificial sweetener and then I get some type of sickness or whatever. You, you can't necessarily attribute that to the artificial sweetener, you know, because correlation does not equal causation. And it, and it could be a myriad of other things. I mean, that's why we have experimental research to determine you know, what type of things truly are causal. And so, I mean, there is, a, there is a vast amount of data out there on artificial sweeteners, both animal data and human data. Um, and when you really look at the research as a whole, when, when they're consumed in amounts that are basically under what is called the adequate daily intake or ADI, as long as you don't exceed the ADI, you know, they're, they're perfectly safe for the vast majority of people. Now, they're very, there may be very, very small percentages of people who may be sensitive um, under, under certain circumstances. Um, but, but when you look at the vast majority of people, and as long as you consume it under the ADI, you know, the vast majority of evidence indicates they're safe. Now, 
another thing about the ADI is what a lot of people don't realize about the ADI is there's actually a 100-fold safety factor built into the ADI. So the, so the way they establish the ADI for any type of substance, whether it's an artificial sweetener or anything else, um, any type of thing that's put in food, basically what they do is they take the maximum dose that's been found to not cause any side effects in animals. And that's called the no observed adverse event or, or effect level, N-O-A-E-L. They take that amount and they divide it by 100. And then that's what they establish as what the maximum dose um, for humans would be that would be considered safe. But obviously there's a 100-fold safety factor built into that. Um, and, and, and that ADI is basically if you were to consume that maximum amount every day for the rest of your life, so, which most people don't do. And when you look at epidemiological, or I shouldn't say epidemiological data, observational data um, on the intake of artificial sweeteners for most people, most people don't even come close to exceeding the ADI. There's been a few papers that suggested under certain circumstances in certain countries um, a few people can, might exceed the ADI, but, but most people don't even come close. I mean, the amount, you know, I actually wrote in an article here, I'd have to see if I can find it, but, um, you know, it gave the amount of, for example, of diet soda, the amount of cans of diet soda you would have to drink to exceed the ADI for um, certain sweeteners. And I don't know those, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it was like, You'd have to drink 20 or 30 cans of soda, diet soda a day, which it, it, a few people do. I mean, in the weight management program that we had, I mean, the thing is, you know, again, most of our clients were Microsoft employees. And one of the things Microsoft does is they give out free soda to free soda and drinks to their employees. I mean, there's like there, there's basically on, you know, in every building just down the hallway, there will be. A, a, a soda uh, dispenser, or not a dispenser, but basically just a little refrigerator. You can pull just cans out. I mean, my my wife did a contract job at Microsoft for for three months, and and I mean, it was just they were these things were everywhere, and and so sometimes we would have a few clients that would come into our program, and yeah, they were drinking like twenty cans of soda a day. So so there are people that do that, but you know that that's obviously the exception rather than the rule. I mean, most people don't don't go to that excess so so that's my long-winded answer to your question so why do you think it is that artificial sweeteners have gotten such a horrible reputation is it just from these stories on the internet or are there anecdotal accounts that might reflect maybe a personal sensitivity to these compounds um, i think it's more just the stories on the internet I'm, I'm i'm and it's not just artificial sweeteners i mean basically a lot of people have this this whole idea of something that's artificial or a chemical in a sense, I mean, basically, but all, I mean, everything is a chemical, all foods are chemical. So it, I think it's this, some people, not everybody, but some people have this mentality that somehow things that are natural are, are, are better for you. And that things, anything that, that is quote unquote artificial um, must have some type of adverse health effect simply because it's man-made or it's, you know, and, and so I think it's, I think it can be an emotional gut reaction that some people have. Um, um, and it may even, you know, some people just have a certain worldview that, you know, natural is better. And, and so I think it kind of plays along those lines. Um, and I think it also, you know, 
I mean, let's say somebody gets cancer or something like that. I mean, we all want something to blame. So I think sometimes, you know, given the prevalence of artificial sweeteners in foods and everything, I think that they can make a really good scapegoat, you know, and people want to point the fingers. Um, there, are, there are documented sensitivities to, um, to certain sweeteners, but, but again, they're, they're very, very rare. Um, for example, there's been some case reports of headaches with aspartame. I was going to ask you just a quick question about that. Yeah. I mean, aspartame is one of those things where 75% you know, of adverse reactions to food additives that get reported to the FDA are from aspartame, and headaches is the number one symptom of that. I mean, you're saying some people, but it seems like they get more about this than they do from you know, E. coli or anything else. Well, and so, so here's, here's the problem with, with using the, the, um, the FDA's um, – basically, anybody can report anything to the FDA – but the thing is, is you can't, again, it can't, you can't necessarily attribute it to the actual sweetener. So it's like, you know, someone eats something and they get a headache and they think, oh, well, I think it, it might have been aspartame and I'll report it to the FDA. But the FDA doesn't actually investigate it further. Um, um, so when you actually look at the controlled studies, so they've actually done controlled studies on aspartame and headaches. And one study was actually a very well-designed study where it was a double-blind study. And they took people, they recruited people who claimed that they got headaches from aspartame. And it was, it was double-blind, and they gave them you know, either aspartame or placebo. And the people reported headaches just as much from the placebo as they did from the aspartame. So it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't aspartame actually causing the headaches. Um, now, there have been a few case reports in the literature that, you know, some people reported headaches from aspartame use, and then when they obviously eliminated the aspartame from their diet, the headaches went away. Um, so, so there's still maybe, you know, a little bit of evidence there. You know, it's not very strong evidence that it causes headaches. Um, but, um, again, that's going to be a minority, you know, if it does cause headaches, it's obviously in a very, it's in a, in a, it's in a small minority of people and in most people, you know, it's, it's not going to be an issue. Um, but yeah, the, the, the problem with using the FDA's, um, complaint registrations is that it's not, it's not controlled data and, and, and actually, you know, there was a study done, um, where they actually, they actually did investigate some of the complaints to the FDA. Where was that? Let's see if I can find this here, because I actually wrote about it in, on my site. Basically, what, what they did is they, um, they took people who had, uh, who had registered complaints to the FDA, and then they wanted to look at, um, they looked at some of these people's behaviors and, and things, and uh, what they found is that some of the people that, that got reported the headaches from aspartame, it turned out that the, the headache triggers were actually something else and it wasn't the aspartame. So that's, again, why, why the FDA's registration data is, is not real reliable. I mean, it, it brings about ideas of things that should be investigated, but it's not reliable data in and of itself. Here's how I determined that I'm one of those guys who really is sensitive to it, and yeah. I didn't know it because I was you know, back when I was maybe 20, I would, I'd probably eat, you know, 15 pieces of NutraSweet gum a day and drink a couple diet sodas, you know, trying to lose weight when I weighed 300 pounds. But yeah. one time I had one of those, like, you know, 42 ounce sodas of straight Diet Coke by itself for breakfast. And I sat in class all day long and I, I swear I was like, 
I was on a hallucinogen. I, I never felt that bad. I ended up like like waking up in a pool of my own drool on the desk in front of me and thinking, I haven't felt this bad in my entire life. It was the only variable that I changed that morning. So I started paying attention to it, and it, it's to the point where I, I don't touch the stuff. And if I do touch it without even thinking it's in my food, I get exactly the same symptoms every time. Mm-hmm. So seemed, I would like to, to ask you your thoughts about, well, okay, you don't really need the FDA or, or any of these trials. Have just a good-sized dose of NutraSweet and nothing else and see what happens. Well, well and, and again, it's not, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that nobody is sensitive to, 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 to NutraSweet or, or aspartame, you know, because here's the deal with, with scientific trials. You know, the, the thing about scientific trials is, you know, given the sample sizes in scientific trials, if there is an extremely rare effect, um, it may not necessarily show up in scientific trials because there's not enough people um, to actually detect, to detect the, you know, because basically, you know, whenever you're comparing a placebo and a, um, and anything like aspartame, you know, you're looking for statistically significant differences between groups. Um, but if you don't have real large sample sizes, you, you know, if, if there's a difference that's very rare or very, very, very small, you won't be able to detect it. So, um, um, so it's very possible that there is a very small percentage of people, and you may be in that very small percentage, that that may be very sensitive to it. And 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 I even wrote in my article that, you know, I said, you know, I said, you know, certain, you know, I even say here actually, there's a sentence in my article that says there is some data to suggest that aspartame might be a migraine trigger in a small percentage of susceptible individuals, but the data here remains inconsistent. So definitely, there may be a small, you know, I, I'm certainly not saying that it's not going to cause effects in anybody because, you know, again, when you're looking at scientific data and you're dealing with limited sample sizes, there may be rare effects that you maybe can't necessarily detect in, in a small, very small number of people. So, so you could be very well one of those, you know, one of those real small percentages, you know, because there are case reports in the literature, you know, and I do, I do, do talk about some of those case reports in the literature in my, um, um, in my articles. Um, and so it would be up to an individual. I mean, obviously, you're not going to hurt anything by eliminating aspartame in your diet. So, you know, I mean, if, if you eliminate it and it seems like the effects go away, then, then yeah, then, then that's great. What do you think about the idea of, of just testing yourself? So, I mean, I have some people who read the blog who are yeah. like, you know, I read the Snopes entry on, on NutraSweet, and I, I think it, it must be safe because I want it to be safe, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep drinking my diet sodas. And I, I tend to find that people don't perform as well cognitively if they're regular diet soda users for whatever reason, whether it's an insulin effect or something else. I'm not saying that they're going to necessarily kill you, although I think NutraSweet may be one of the ones I'm most concerned about. But um, what do you think of the idea of just doing the test yourself? With, you know, it's not double-blinded, obviously. I suppose you, you could make it double-blinded, but just saying, you know, all right, drink the, drink the soda and see how you do that morning. And I, I think most people would feel worse on Diet Coke for breakfast compared to a glass of water for breakfast. Well, yeah, I mean, and again, there's nothing wrong with doing that. I mean, as you point out, though, I mean, there's, you're, you're introducing some psychological expectations that may actually influence how you feel. Sure. I mean, you know, but the thing is, but, you know, let's say it is just a placebo effect. Even if it's just a placebo effect, it's like, so what? You know, if it's just a placebo effect, if you feel better not taking it, then you feel better not taking it. I mean, I mean, exactly. I mean again, you know, it's not a, it's not like a dichotomous situation where it's like, 
you know, oh, aspartame is safe, therefore you should have it. It's, it's more, you know, you know, what I try to fight against is I just don't like scaremongering or fearmongering that, you know, I'm very evidence-based and I'm like, you know, I, you know, the way I write my articles on my site is I'm, I'm very level-headed. I'm just saying, here, here's what the scientific evidence says. Here's, you know, there may be some people that may be sensitive to aspartame. If you feel you're sensitive, then you don't have to consume it. And, and yeah, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, if you limit it in your diet and if you feel better, then great. Then, then there's certainly nothing wrong with doing that. Have you so, seen any studies on, uh, on, say, working memory or cognitive performance or athletic performance associated with any of the, of the sweeteners that you've written about? Um, actually, yes. There, there, well, there, there's been um, aspartame studies on mood, cognition, and behavior. For example, what did they, they show up? I'm not familiar with those studies, but I'm I'm thinking there's probably a lot of people who are listening to this who actually do use NutraSweet. So I'd I'd love to hear what if you remember off the top of your head what those studies kind of what they found. Yeah, well, um, well, there was there, there's one actually I pulled up my aspartame article here, so I'm a, I'm able to to look at what I wrote here. There were some double blind studies on children, including those thought to be sugar sensitive or or with attention deficit disorder, and they looked at uh, behavior, mood, um, learning, and also plasma amino acids and neurotransmitters, and they didn't find any effects there. Um, there's also research on adults using doses of up to 74 milligrams per kilogram for six months have have also not found any adverse effects on mood um, or learning. Um, there was a study, a double-blind crossover study on depressed patients. Now, that study, they reported an increased frequency and severity of adverse experiences in the subjects receiving aspartame. However, the study was flawed because the researchers numerically combined unrelated adverse effects, which is basically a no-no in terms of statistics. And um, also, the lead author of that study is a person who's actually, who um, has misrepresented a large body of aspartame research. He actually, he actually lied about some aspartame studies and, and I, and I actually wrote about it in, in one of my articles. So, so that, that, that was one study where I was really iffy about because, because who the lead author was. They've also done studies on people with, with uh, phenylketonuria. So phenylketonuria is a genetic disorder where you have trouble metabolizing phenylalanine. And you'll probably notice, you know, when you ever see a, when you see a product that contains aspartame, it'll say, at least in the U.S., and I'm not sure what, it's, what it is in Canada, but, but in the United States, there will be a warning label that says, you know, uh, for individuals with PKU, this product contains phenylalanine. So phenylalanine is a naturally occurring amino acid, but, but uh, people with the, it's a rare genetic disorder. They have trouble metabolizing that amino acid. So since aspartame contains phenylalanine, um, any product that has aspartame has to have that warning label. But so they actually did a study on the brain function, brain electrical activity, and plasma amino acids in people with phenylketonuria, and they found no effects, no adverse effects at all. You know, and these were people in with a genetic disorder where they actually had trouble metabolizing um, phenylalanine. So, so when you look at the vast majority of research, there, there does not appear to be effect on, uh, on mood, cognition, or behavior. Again, though, as I stated before, you know, I, I, you can't rule out a very rare effect. Um, again, given the sample sizes of these studies, there could be some very, very rare effect that happens in a very small percentage of people that, that these studies just can't detect because of the limitations of statistics. Yeah, that, that's a concern of mine with with a lot of a lot of the studies. Some of them aren't aren't long enough, and just because some of the effects, if they're if they take a while, 
then it, it, you're just not going to cover a 10-year chronic usage effect in a typical study. Like, it's, no one's going to fund that, and it's just not really doable, so you have to, to resort to epidemiological evidence. And then there's the whole, well, I'm, I'm not as, as high performance, not as well as I, as I would have been if I didn't do this kind of thing. And my, call it my particular fetish there is around, you know, how do I maximize cognitive performance and memory and personal performance, you know, kind of on all levels. So you can, you know, have the energy to do what you want, whether it's, you know, go walking in the Himalayas or, you know, extra time with the kids after a long day at work, whatever it is, but just to sort of be able to be more intense when you need to be. So uh, I'll tell you, I'm still very skeptical that NutraSweet is, is a health food, and I think that the risks of taking it are higher than the risks of not taking it, because there's no risk for not taking it. But um, I do know there's a lot of controversy about it. And uh, from a personal biohacking perspective, I would encourage anyone listening to the show to give, give it a try. I mean, if, if you think it's really bad uh, or you think it's really good, eliminate every other variable you can, have a large dose and see how you do, and then do that some other day with just water or have a friend do it with regular Coke versus Diet Coke. See what the difference is. You, you might be surprised. You might not be surprised. So t tell us about the history of some of the other common sweeteners uh, other than NutraSweet, which we sort of zoomed in on there, or other than aspartame, um, like neotame or sucralose or acyl sulfame potassium. Um, what's, your, what's your take there? Uh, well, um, again, you know, my take is, you know, they're, they're, they're safe for the vast majority of people. Neotame is basically, um, uh, is very similar to aspartame. It's basically, it's just like aspartame, it's made up of two amino acids, phenylalanine and aspartic acid. Um, it's just that the bond between the two are stronger than aspartame. Um, so neotame is, is, is um, that's why it's better for baked goods, because it won't break down like aspartame will. But basically, other than that, neotame is pretty much identical to aspartame for the most part. Sucralose um, is basically an isomer of sugar. And the thing about sucralose, basically your body can't metabolize it. So, so what happens with sucralose is it um, basically just passes right through you, unmetabolized. And then there's acylfame potassium. Same thing. Again, there's an ADI. I mean, all these, all these um, products have, you know, ADIs, that type of thing. And again, vast majority of evidence indicates that, you know, sucralose is safe, you know, again, in, in the vast majority of people. But again, you know, you can't rule out that there may be a very small percentage of people who may have um, um, sensitivities. So, and then there's saccharin. And saccharin kind of got a bad rap for a while because, um, you know, saccharin actually became kind of, you know, the big sweetener in the 1970s. And suddenly it kind of got a bad rap for a while because um, there were some studies done on rats, and a few of the studies found an increased risk of bladder cancer. And so suddenly all these products that contain saccharin would carry a warning label, and it would say, you know, use of this product may be hazardous to your health. This product contains saccharin, which has been determined to cause cancer in laboratory animals. And so what actually happened, um, the National Institute for Environmental Health put saccharin on its potential carcinogen list. Um, the International Agency for Research on Cancer also labeled saccharin as potentially carcinogenic. However, the National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences eventually reversed its position on saccharin and removed it from the potential carcinogen list, and also these warning labels were removed. And the reason was it was discovered that the cancer-causing mechanism in rats actually did not apply to humans. Um, that was the first reason. The second reason was 
they needed an extremely high dose to see the effect in rats, you know, a dose much higher than a human would ever actually consume. Um, it's also been found that vitamin C will actually, when fed at similar doses, will cause bladder cancer in rats. And, and really what it comes down to is, is rodents are very susceptible to bladder cancer when you have any type of sodium salt, um, whether it's sodium ascorbate, which is vitamin C, or sodium saccharin, or, or anything, you give them a high enough dose and they'll get bladder cancer because, because it actually has to do with the sodium salts themselves and, and not, not the, the thing. So, so in 1999, um, the IARC actually downgraded saccharin from possibly carcinogenic in humans to not classifiable as their carcinogenicity in humans. Um, in 2000, the requirement for warning labels was removed in the United States. Um, actually, in Europe, saccharin never has been prohibited, and, and it was never required to have warning labels. And actually, Canada is considering lifting its ban on saccharin um, as a, as a um, food additive. I can tell you, I, I would choose saccharin over a lot of the more modern, less tested sweeteners, uh, just in terms of health risks. But I would, I would probably just use xylitol or erythritol, which have far fewer risks and probably health benefits compared to anything that's on the list here. What do you think about those guys? Um, so, so, so the sugar alcohols like xylitol and everything, um, the, the only issue with the sugar alcohols is if, if you consume too much, you can get diarrhea and things like that um, um, because they, have, they, they can attract water into your intestine and everything. And so there are reported side effects ab above a certain dose. And I would have to, I don't remember, recall what those doses were. Um, actually, it's funny that you brought up sugar alcohols because I did an entire presentation on sugar alcohols too. You know, when I worked for 2020 Lifestyles, I uh, did a whole, you know, because the dietitians were thinking the same thing. They're like, well, what about sugar alcohols? Can you do some research on sugar alcohols for us? So I did this big, long literature review, you know, went through all the research on sugar alcohols. And, and yeah, sugar alcohols, I mean, perfectly safe in certain doses. Uh, but, but again, you get above a certain threshold dose for some of them and you can, you can have gastrointestinal side effects like diarrhea and things. So. Most definitely. Um, I, I have to sort of warn my, my wife occasionally because we, we mostly use xylitol and erythritol. We have two young kids. And once you're acclimated, you know, once your body learns to make the enzymes like xylonase that break down xylitol, you don't have that problem anymore. But if you bake a bunch of xylitol cupcakes and you don't warn people who eat them, um, there will be a line in the bathroom, and, and that's yeah, not so yeah. nice. So <laughs> it's, it's a question of dosage for sure yeah, for people yeah. who've never had it, but most people yeah. can have a few teaspoons. Yeah. Um, well, let, let's talk a little bit about acyl sulfame potassium, which is, in my mind, the most realistic tasting fake sweetener I've ever, I've ever found. Mm -hmm. um, I used to eat a lot of this stuff when I was working on losing weight a lot before I, I figured out a different path. But um, I actually got diagnosed with having benign thyroid growths uh, by uh, a physician in the Bay Area, uh, actually not even an alternative physician, just, you know, the, the standard kind of uh, Western doctor. Uh, and <clears throat> I did some looking around and found, oh, wait, this is like my number one sweetener, and it appears to be tied to this. And when I, I dug in on that, I mean, there's a whole bunch of pretty high-end government science people like uh, – who are saying things like there are lots of serious flaws in the design and conduct of the tests around acyl sulfate and potassium. And you know, this is a physician who's the former director from the International Agency for Research on Cancer in the WHO. And he's like, this is a Lorenzo Tomatis quote, 
and it, it a whole bunch of things like that where they're saying, look, like the, the research behind this one is really there's just not enough, and what we do see has some cancer concerns. Did you not find this when you looked at acyl sulfame potassium? Actually, I, I did address those issues. So, uh, oh, you so okay. what you're referring to is. Um, so there were some cancer studies done in the 1970s on whether ACE-K might cause cancer, and those studies were criticized. Um, um, some of the criticisms include they, they said that the randomization of test groups were not carried out properly. Um, the mice were held on tests for only 80 weeks, not the 104 weeks, which is characteristic of, of national toxicology program studies. And there were also claims that the monitoring of animals was very poor, that there were high disease rates and extensive cell destruction of tissues. Now, there's been disagreement over that. So, so the European um, Scientific um, Committee on Food, the European SCF, they disagreed with those criticisms. They stated that all of the 1970 studies other than one were adequate to be used for safety evaluation. And that one study was ultimately dismissed by both the Food and Drug Administration and SCF was a 104-week study. Um, in, in that study, the, um, the researchers observed higher death rates in the rats fed ACE-K compared to the controls. Higher death rates were found in the males fed a diet of 1 and 3% ACE-K. Uh, females fed a diet 0.3% ACE-K. Um, however, the death rates were in the normal range for the rat strain, and the death rate in the control group was abnormally low. The incidence of lung tumors was high in the group getting the highest dose, and there was some evidence that the tumors appeared earlier. However, this type of tumor was a common cause of death in this particular rat strain, and the frequency of tumors was still within the normal range. These results were likely consequence of a respiratory disease rather than the ACE-K, and that's why the FDA and the SCF basically ended up dismissing that study. Um, of the studies they did find adequate, um, they found no increase in mortality or tumor incidence. Now, the National Toxicology Program did follow up with a study on genetically modified mice in 2005. Um, now, these were mice these were mice that are more susceptible to getting cancer because they possess genes that predispose them to getting cancer, um, and they also lack genes that help suppress tumors. And, and there was actually no cancer-causing effects seen in this study, despite the fact that these animals were actually more susceptible to getting cancer. Now, again, there has been some criticism there because that transgenic model system hasn't been validated yet as a lone cancer study. ACE-K was twice nominated in 1996 and 2006 for the National Toxicology Program standard cancer studies, but the NTP rejected both nominations. So, so I do address the criticisms of, of some of the, the, the ACE-K data. And, and so, you know, kind of my summary was, you know, the vast majority of evidence indicates it's safe when consumed at amounts below the ADI. And I also want to preface that. I mean, we're talking about amounts below the ADI. If you're consuming really, really large amounts of this stuff, which you might be if you're, you know, someone who goes on a diet and they're just consuming diet products all day, I mean, they might be consuming more than the ADI. But if you're consuming amounts lower than the ADI, most evidence indicates, or majority of evidence indicates it's safe. There have been some questions about the quality of the long-term cancer studies, but the bulk of the evidence currently indicates there is no cancer-causing effect. Because ACE-K has not been on the market as long as sweeteners like aspartame, there is no epidemiological data to confirm the lack of cancer-causing effect in humans. Overall, though, the risk of ACE-K-inducing cancer is negligible based on current data. There is some data that suggests that small children may approach the ADI in certain, certain circumstances, so caution is warranted there. And so, you know, my kind of final sentence in my article on uh, ACE-K was, you know, as I constantly preach in my article, an approach of moderation is likely best when it comes to sweeteners like ACE-K. So 
again, certainly there's nothing wrong with eliminating it if it's of concern. Um, but I always try to just take a very level-headed look. You know, here's what the evidence says. You know, most evidence in these cases is safe, but there is some question marks about the data. So, James, one of the other really common sweeteners is stevia. And I know a lot of people have, as you talked about earlier, say it's better because it's natural. Is it really as good as people say? Is it safe? What is your opinion about stevia? Same thing with stevia. Most of the evidence indicates it's safe. There were some question marks about stevia originally um, because there wasn't a lot of data on it. Um, and there were some concerns based on a few studies that, um, it, make, that it could cause reproductive toxicity. But, but, but more advanced studies, because there were, there were some, some concerns about effects on male fertility and things, but, but those, those early studies were kind of problematic. Um, when you look at the, the, the better studies and the more recent studies, they don't show any adverse reproductive effects of stevia. So, so stevia definitely seems to be okay there. Um, there's no evidence of genotoxic effects. Where stevia, the only issue where, where stevia might be a problem, and this is just like artificial sweeteners, there may be a small percentage of people who are sensitive. There are, there are documented people who may have allergies to stevia. Um, there have been case reports of people getting atopic eczema, which is basically scaly and itchy rashes on your skin from stevia. And there have actually been a few case reports of people going into anaphylactic shock from getting stevia. Stevia versus NutraSweet or versus aspartame, which one do you think is, is a better choice? Again, I don't think one is any better than the other. I, I, it just, I think it just comes down to the individual. I, I really don't think one is any better than the other. Um, you know, for me personally, I would, t- I would do either one, but that's just for me. But, but it comes down to the individual. You know, if somebody has allergies, there's some case reports that, that people with nasal allergies, um, there, was one, one, or there was one study, 16% of infants with, with um, nasal allergies were found to be allergic to stevia. 34% of infants with bronchial asthma were found to be allergic to stevia, and also 64% of the infants with atopic eczema were found to be allergic to stevia. So, so if you're a person with um, like asthma or nasal allergies or something like that, you actually may probably you might be better off with with aspartame versus stevia. But again, it comes down to you just have to try it and see. Um, although, again, you want to be careful about, uh, again, because there have been some case reports of anaphylactic shock with stevia. So, Plus, the, there, there's the, the point that stevia, to a lot of people, tastes kind of like socks. I, I don't, <laughs> it's one of my least favorite sweeteners, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, like, I've never had, I don't think I've, I, I'm not sure I've ever even had a product with stevia in it, so I'm not familiar with, with the, um, the taste. Um, the regular status, regulatory status of it actually varies dramatically from one country to the next. Um, um, currently in the United States, uh, the stevia leaf and extracts are available as dietary supplements, but are not approved for use as a food additive or sweetener. Um, only rabaudioside A, which is basically a component of stevia is approved for use as a, as a sweetener, but it is basically rabaudioside A is, has been given grass status by the FDA. So what grass means is generally regarded as safe. Um, so it has not gone, gone through the, the stringent testing, actually, that things like aspartame have gone through. Um, when you look in Europe, the Euro- European Union actually has not approved stevia as a sweetener, um, although it, is ex- it was expected to do it sometime this year, but uh, I don't know. I, you know. I haven't followed up on that, so I don't know if they actually did eventually approve it or, or what's been going on with stevia in Europe. Um, it's been approved in some other countries. France temporarily approved rabaudioside A. It's a two-year test that's currently ongoing. There are a few countries that have banned stevia, Hong Kong, Singapore, Norway. 
um, actually have banned stevia. But, you know, again, most evidence indicates it's safe, but, but just like with the artificial sweeteners, there may be a small percentage of people who may be sensitive and may actually have allergies to it. So, you know, the, 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 and this is really true with any type of food, you know, whether it's artificial or naturally occurring, you know, there are foods that people have sensitivities to. It doesn't matter whether it's natural or not. And, and you know, it, it still comes down to an individual decision on, on what's going to work best for you. And that's, you know, that's why I, I don't like to make blanket statements about any, any type of product, whether it's an artificial sweetener or a natural sweetener like, like Stevia, because, you know, it might be fine for most people. But, again, there may be some people where, where it's, you know, it, it doesn't really work for them. So um, it really comes down to it really comes down to the individual and, and um, you know, knowing what's going to work for you and, and what makes you feel good. I couldn't agree more. I, I think having having that same thing, if you want to see how Stevia works, use it as your sweetener for a while and, and look for how you feel and, and how you're doing. The other question there that that's along the lines of Stevia is Lohan. Have you come across that at all? No, I, I've never even heard of Lohan. That's, that's, that's new to me. I've, I've it's, don't have it's any a knowledge new on. Chinese fruit extract that's 300 times sweetener than almost anything else out there, but it's also solvent extracted just like Stevia. And I'm, uh, I'm a little skeptical of it, but uh, it, I've been getting a few questions about that from people. And uh, I tend to say if it's been extracted using xylene or toluene, you probably ought not to eat it as a general practice. <laughs> but um, it, who knows? You know, I haven't seen a lot of studies on that. Yeah, yeah, I, I haven't even heard of that, so I, I don't know. I don't have any okay. knowledge on that. In terms of, of health benefits, like for any of these artificial sweeteners, uh, are there documented things where, wow, people eat this and they do better than people who don't eat it, or is it just that, oh, they probably don't kill you? Well, I know while well, stevia is not really an artificial sweetener, but there has been some evidence for stevia that actually, um, it's actually, actually helped people with diabetes and their blood sugar control. Yeah, I've um, seen that too. Yeah, so, so there's been some studies on that. As far as, you know, improving anything or, or, or actually showing, like, some type of health benefit, um, I mean, the only benefit would be, you know, if, if, if someone's able to, you know, like a diabetic is able to reduce sugar in their diet or something like that. But, but there's no evidence that, you know, there's something going to have this health benefit. I mean, I mean, you know, when you take a look at aspartame, I mean, really all aspartame is, it's uh, um, uh, it's basically uh, two amino acids linked together, you know, aspartic acid and phenylalanine, um, which are just naturally occurring amino acids in foods. And then there's methanol, um, um, which is a wood, which is basically like wood alcohol. And so when you take aspartame, you basically your body breaks it down in those three substances. Now, some people have raised concern about the methanol because you know methanol is very is toxic in very high amounts. But the thing is, you actually get more methanol from fruit juice. You know, we, we all have methanol in our diets because, you know, fruits and fruit naturally, methanol occurs naturally in fruits and fruit juices and stuff. And yeah, you actually get more methanol from fruit than you ever would from aspartame. So, but your body, you know, small amounts, your body can handle methanol, no problem. I mean, it's, it's, it just, it totally just metabolizes it. You know, you need really high doses of methanol to, for it to, um, to actually be toxic. So... Um, as far as actually any type of health benefit, no, I mean, there's not going to be, there, there's not going to be anything, you know, you know, it's not going to lower your cholesterol. I mean, the only benefit becomes like, you know, if you're able to eliminate certain foods that do increase your cholesterol and you replace them with an artificially sweetened food, then that would be the actual, the, the benefit, 
quote unquote benefit. But, you know, compared to a placebo, you know, aspartame is not going to lower your cholesterol or it's not going to, um, it's not going to reduce your blood pressure or something like that. So. Got it. I, th- that was kind of my, my general assumption. I, I think that, that, there's no reason to eat artificial sweeteners whatsoever when you can just eat food that doesn't taste sweet and have positive effects from the food. Like, like I, I look at it from very much a, like a broad systems thinking thing. Like you're, you're adding another variable that isn't shown to have a positive effect and could potentially have a negative effect in terms of simplicity and all. Cutting that out is not a bad idea, but if you think you're going to die if it doesn't taste sweet, then you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe you need to do it for your stress. But uh, I eventually eliminated all artificial sweeteners and just went with sugar alcohols or uh, straight dextrose in, in my diet um, if, I, if I'm looking for you know, a little cognitive boost just from getting uh, my glycogen levels up because I, I couldn't find a reason to drink a diet soda versus a Pellegrino. Like, there was no positive possible thing I could determine there. Um, it sounds like you, you haven't seen anything other than, well, if, if you drink this, it'll keep you from drinking something that's even worse, which yeah, I would agree with that too. Let's move on to another area of, of actually passion for me. I'm really interested in, in bacon um, as, a, as a religion, actually. Okay, maybe not quite that far. But uh, I know that you've done some work on preservatives and particularly mm-hmm. looking at nitrates. What's your take on bacon, uh, on on the level of nitrate or nitrite in it, and um, sort of where, where do you land on the bacon spectrum? Well, you know, I don't know how much nitrates or, or nitrates are in bacon, but basically what it comes down to is um, when you're looking at nitrates and nitrites, nit- nitrates and nitrites, there's really no evidence, you know, evidence in case they're perfectly safe. And, and what a lot of people don't realize is nitrates and nitrites actually are found naturally in vegetables. I mean, yeah. yeah. So, you know, nitrates and nitrites are not, you know, um, you know, because there have been some concerns that they could cause cancer and everything. And, and really where the concern comes from is, you know, these substances can be converted to what are called N-nitroso compounds or, or nitrosamines. And nitrosamines definitely are carcinogenic. Um, and... Um, so, you know, some people have thought about, well, you know, could it be the nitrites and nitrates that, that, that are responsible, you know, for, for possibly causing cancer and everything. Um, but, again, nitrates and nitrates are, are found in vegetables. But, but there's some, some differences there. So, for example, when you look at the nitrate in vegetables, you're also getting antioxidants in the vegetables. And the antioxidants actually prevent the nitrosamines from forming. So, you know... So it's not totally, you're not comparing apples and oranges when you're comparing, for example, nitrates and or nitrates in bacon and vegetables. And the nitrates uh, actually, you, you so, probably are because in the U.S., the requirements for bacon are 60 milligrams of ascorbic acid per kilo in order to block the effects of uh, nitrosamine formation. Yeah, you know, and, and that's true. Um, and, and basically, really what it comes down to is where the issue more comes from. Um, it's not really the nitrates and nitrites themselves. Where the problem can come from is actually when it comes down to more red meats. What's been found is that, the, the, you know, the thing that makes red meat red is, is the heme iron that's in it. The thing about heme iron, what has been found is that heme iron um, will actually increase N-nitrosal formation. So... Um, so when you eat red meat, especially like a processed red meat, like, 
like let's say salami or or pepperoni or something like that. <laughs> yeah, um, when you eat that type of meat, you're you're getting a you're you're actually getting a big elevation of nitrosamines because of the fact because of the heme iron that's in the meat. And and actually they found that you know when when people eat red meat or red processed meats, nitrosamine excretion in the feces increased by up to can increase by up to three times, which is similar to the increase observed with smoking. Um, and when you switch to white meat, it reduces fecal nitrosamine levels. And they've actually found a dose-dependent effect between red meat and fecal excretion of nitroso compounds. So really, you know. When you look at epidemiological data, you see this association between red and processed meat intake and colon cancer. And, you know, the, the big thing that's really going on there, it's probably because of the heme iron that's in the red and cured meats. And, um, and it's reacting yeah, it, with you, nitrates. It reacts with the nitrates, and then it increases the N-nitroso compounds um, in the diet. I have a question yeah. about that. If you're eating, you know, cured that turkey, those turkey sliced, you know, weird things or, you know, reconstituted chicken, <clears throat> like you'd find in a chicken McNugget or something, those are essentially cured chicken products. Are those, are those the sorts of things that are also going to cause this problem? Because you're basically not, um, applying those same chemical processes to the protein that's in white meat, or is cured white meat okay, according to the research you're talking about? Well, I would say, I would say the cured white meat is certainly better than the cured um, um, red meats. But again, though, I mean, even those cured white meats, you know, like, like you had mentioned, you know, the, the, the bacon at least has the, the sodium ascorbate and stuff in it. Um, but, um, you know, some other cured white meats may not have those antioxidants. So, you know, it, it's a tough question there with the cured white meats because, you know, when you look at epidemiological data, it's very tough to, you know, you can basically look at red meat, you can look at, at, at processed meats, but when you try to break it down into different types of processed meats in terms of epidemiology, it, it, it kind of becomes kind of hairy statistically. The variable and, there that, that very few people look at, and it, the one that's almost impossible to do uh, from a broad population perspective, is the formation of mycotoxins during curing and also even in what the animals ate. And that's one of the things that makes it really tough because this batch of bacon or this batch of sausage, depending on where it was cured and what the animal ate, may have very different levels of things that form in the curing process that are not nitrate-related whatsoever. And some of those molecules, we, could only, we only learned about how to identify them in 1985. Um, these are you know, basically parts per million effective things. I've got a lecture on the site about that. So I, I'm very skeptical of almost all cured meats, and I even tell people who are going to eat bacon, um, which I, I consider to be healthy if you don't burn it when you cook it, and if you make sure it was cured with vitamin C and it came from a healthy animal, which means it, it's kind of a, a high bar to pass, but if you do that, you can eat bacon and feel really good and even experience um, cognitive benefits from it. But I, I'm with you there. Most cured meats, whether they're whatever color they are, I, I wouldn't touch them with the 10-foot pole. Yeah, I also, you know, one thing I always, I recommend to people, you know, when, when you do consume meats, consume them with fruits and vegetables, um, because at least, you know, then you, at least you're getting the antioxidants from the fruits and vegetables because that can help reduce any nitrosamine formation. So, um, um, it's also, it, it, it's, it's good advice. Um, in fact, I would say if, if you're going to eat, eat meat, you take an antioxidant capsule with it. Uh, I, use, I oftentimes do, I can't say I always do, but the other trick that that I've seen, and I wanted to get your take on this, 
is that uh, some of the more organic, we'll call it hippie bacon, if there is such a thing, companies are saying, oh, it's it's uh, nitrate free, and instead they're using celery powder. Celery would be the highest nitrite form of vegetable that we know of. So they're essentially taking powdered nitrite that came from celery and saying it's nitrate free. Um, do you see any harm in that practice of using nitrite from celery versus nitrate? Uh, I don't see any harm in it. I don't see why that would be harmful. Um, I, I don't think so either. I think it's kind of misleading, but I, I, it seems safe to yeah, me. Yeah, it's, yeah, it probably is misleading, but um, but yeah, I don't see any harm in it. Okay. I put nitrate. I put nitrate salts, you know, curing salt on the bacon that I make. So I'm I'm o- I'm okay with nitrates. The other thing that I'm curious if if you've come across is the role of probiotics in the gut on the formation of nitrosamines inside the digestive process. Um, you know, I, I, you know, when I wrote my article on that, I, I didn't really look into um, um, the effects of, of um, the bacteria in the gut. Um, it, it turns out there's pretty good research on that, enough that I recommend take your probiotics because if you have healthy gut flora, the formation of nitrosamines in the gut goes down dramatically. Or we could use your trick, eat things that are rich in antioxidants when you're going to eat things that may potentially form those harmful compounds. And for the, I have a lot of the the paleo crowd follows uh, this podcast uh, because the Bulletproof diet is paleo compliant, but it it tries to reduce toxins like mycotoxins and like uh, nitrosamines through the recommended nutritional practices there. James, one other question is about other preservatives as well and colorings and dyes. What do you think about those? Are they similar to the uh, artificial sweeteners we talked about? I know there's some research linking dyes and colorings to things like ADHD and developmental disorders. Do you have any evidence on that? Yeah, you know what? I I haven't read, I haven't done enough reading and the research in that area, so um, I'm not real knowledgeable about the, the studies in that area. But you just gave me a good idea for a topic to look into to, to write about on my site. So typically, again, you're going to have, just like you with artificial sweeteners, there's going to be what's called an ADI or an adequate daily intake where, you know, there's been no observed adverse effects, you know, up to a certain dose or whatever. So, um, but, um, but, you know, and as far as the studies linking the ADHD, I haven't read any of those studies, so I, don't, I can't really offer an opinion on them because I haven't, I haven't actually read any of them, so I don't know you know, what the quality of the data is or anything like that. Do you mind if I send you just a few of the ones that I've picked, uh, found on the website or online and just see if you can look at those? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Thanks. Awesome. Well, we're running up on the end of our, our hour-long sort of in-depth uh, interviews. It, it's, been, uh, it, it's been a really, really good conversation with you, and uh, I appreciate it, James. I think uh, I, I'm probably... Uh, I'd say I, I'd probably disagree that people should take artificial sweeteners because there's no benefit from them. And, you know, there's probably not a lot of, uh, the, if there are risks, there are no benefits. So they, they would fall on the why do it side of the, uh, of the Bulletproof program. But I, I do like your, you know, science-based uh, sort of sane, non-hysterical approach to evaluating them. And uh, I'm, so I, I appreciate that. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show to, uh, to avoid being some of those who we pick a side and we only include information that we agree with in the show because that would sort of be less scientific than, than we try to be. And we're trying to get all of our listeners to have the knowledge that they need in order to make decisions and to even look at effects of things like sweeteners or colorings or nitrates and just evaluate for themselves whether it's the right choice rather than you're dictating. Can you tell everyone who's listening 
uh, where they can learn more about you. Give, give us your URL. Tell us the things that you do in, in terms of services for people and things like that. And we will include links to everything you say on the show notes, and we'll have a full transcript of this up online uh, shortly after we post the podcast. Um, yeah, so uh, my website is weightology.net, www.weightology.net. Um, and you can find uh, everything there. I have a subscription part of the site where I, uh, it's called Weightology Weekly, um, where I review one to two journal articles per week um, that, that mainly deal with weight loss and weight maintenance. But, I, but occasionally I cover other topics like artificial sweeteners and things. And I try to take a very evidence-based approach. You know, I, I, I gather all the studies I can on a topic and uh, well, I'll do two approaches. I may either gather all the studies I can on a topic, you know, if it's a broad topic like artificial sweeteners, um, or I'll just cover like one study and I'll talk about, you know, what the researchers did and what the, you know, how you can take the results of that study and apply them to your own life, um, what the limitations of the study are, because all studies have limitations. Um, so it's basically like a weekly research review, and that's, that's a, a subscription part of the site. Um, I also have blog posts on there, although... Um, I haven't written one in a while, but, um, but I do have, you know, some blog posts I eventually want to write. Um, I also do online weight loss and weight management consulting, um, and I'm also available to um, give lectures and, and talks as well. So um, I, I do want to thank you so much for the opportunity to interview, and I, and I really, really appreciate you taking the time to, to interview me and, and, and discuss all these topics because obviously we're all uh, very passionate about it. So. James, thanks a ton for, for your time on the show today, and I really look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this, you can help by leaving a positive ranking on iTunes. Thanks a lot. See you next time. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.